my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your forever host Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This is the summer episode. It's kind of like the beach episode in an anime. Woo! Why am I doing it in November? Well, you see, I didn't plan for this to be the super summer episode, but we have four movies with summer in the title, Hot Dog. This episode will have unforgettable summers, Nazi experiments, and expressionist stabbings. Grab your raincoat as we make our way down to the Bahamas. It's storm season. Number one, I know what you did last summer, 1997, directed by Jim Jalepsy. A group of teens, Julie, Ray, Helen, and Barry, accidentally hit a fisherman while driving home. They think he's dead. Right before they dump his body in the ocean, he comes back to life. They still throw him in the ocean where they assume he dies. A year later, they all get letters that say, I know what you did last summer. After receiving these letters, people start dying. Helen and Barry end up dead. Julie gets on a boat with a man named Ben Willis, who is revealed to be the fisherman they hit and threw in the ocean. He's the killer. Ray saves Julie, and Ben, once again, ends up in the ocean. This time without a hand. Time passes and we see Julie at school. Ben jumps through a mirror at her. The fisherman, Ben Willis, is the killer. This movie stars Jennifer Love Hewitt, Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar, and Ryan Felipe as Julie, Ray, Helen, and Barry, respectively. Gellar and Prince met on the set, fell in love, got married, and are still happily married with two kids. They also went on to star together again in the incredible, well, incredibly enjoyable live-action Scooby-Doo movies. Let's start off with the acting, shall we? It's not great. Jennifer Love Hewitt is the main character, Julie, and I've never found her to be a particularly good actor. My favorite thing about her performance in this is her constant shrieking. Instead of screaming, Hewitt shrieks throughout the movie, and her shrieks are hilarious every time. Ryan Felipe is especially terrible and randomly shouts during all of his scenes. His character, Barry Cox, is insanely aggro, but still. Everyone else is there and mediocre. Sarah Michelle Gellar had just started doing Buffy the Vampire Slayer the year prior to this movie. It's strange to see her play a character that doesn't best the villain, given how she comes out victorious in the Buffy series and Scooby-Doo. Fun fact, there are three I Know What You Did Last Summer movies. Because I hate myself, I'm going to cover all of them, including the third that was released directly to video in 2006. Before I continue talking about any of them, I want to make things easier, so I'm going to refer to them as Last Summer 1, 2, and 3 during these segments. So right now, I'm going over Last Summer 1. What were they thinking when they named these movies? A movie title should not be an entire sentence. The title is way too long. 
they should have just named it Last Summer. Without looking to see if a movie already has that name, I'd bet they couldn't use it because there's already a romantic comedy with that title. Last Summer 1 is almost a romantic comedy. Two lovebirds grow apart after high school, only to be reunited by murder-induced trauma. Trauma bonding is a big thing in the horror genre. It's interesting that in the movie, Hewitt and Prince are the couple, and in real life, Prince ended up with Geller. Kat follows Geller on Instagram and told me her life looks really chill, albeit boring these days. The duo haven't really done much since Scooby-Doo, which is probably the key to a happy celebrity marriage. Last summer tried to bring us a new slasher icon with The Fisherman. Thing is, The Fisherman is one of the lamest looking slashers of all time. It's just some dude in full fisherman gear. He looks dumb. For some unknown reason, this movie tries to weave in the old urban legend about the escape maniac with a hook hand that attacks some kids that are making out in a car. Due to them wanting this movie to be loosely connected with that tale, the fisherman uses a hook as a weapon. It's a handheld hook in Last Summer 1, which is upgraded, well I guess technically downgraded, to an actual hook for a hand in the second movie, since the fisherman loses his hand during the climax of Last Summer 1. One really dumb quote that is stuck with me after my viewing is from the fisherman, aka Ben Willis, who after capturing Julie says, Happy 4th of July, Julie. Now you know that you can watch either Last Summer or Uncle Sam for a holiday horror watch on the 4th of July. In my summary, I barely went over why the kids decided to ditch the body instead of calling the police. I mean, it's a complete accident, so the police could have been called. Thing is, the crash happens because Barry is being a belligerent drunk passenger who spills a bunch of liquor all over the front of the car right before Ray, who's soberly driving, runs into the fisherman. They warn you about drunk drivers, but they never really warn you about drunk passengers. After hitting the fisherman with their car, they check his pulse, which they must not know how to do since they say he's dead even though he isn't. They then throw his body into the ocean after they are startled by the fisherman coming too. Throughout the beginning of the movie, the gang thinks they killed some dude. It's revealed that Ray, feeling bad, went to learn about the dude and banged the dude's sister. Dang, Ray, you killed a guy then banged his sister? That's dark. I mean, the guy that they thought they killed was actually killed by Ben Willis, but Ray didn't know that during the banging. Julie finds this out since she and Helen went to the sister's house to try and get information, which is one of the worst ideas ever. They just pop up and start asking super weird questions. The only thing worse than the terrible swishing sounds that are added in for the fisherman's hook swings is the soundtrack. The soundtrack for this movie is insanely bad. None of the songs fit. It's like someone compiled a list of the worst 90 songs and threw them in the movie. The gore in Last Summer 1 is mostly fine. None of it is particularly exciting since a majority of the kills are boring hook stabs. When we finally get to the part in the movie where our final girl sees the bodies of all her dead friends, all of the dead bodies shown look nothing like the actors they are supposed to be. It's funny because they didn't even need to show the bodies. I know what you did last summer is a movie that is worth watching for the cast alone. It's not good, but it is enjoyable and a weird late 90s time capsule. Number 2 I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, 1998, directed by Danny Cannon. A year after the first movie, Julie is at college with some new friends, Carla, Tyrell, and Will Ben's son. Wink wink, nudge nudge. 
She's still with Ray, but they're having a rough patch. Carla wins a radio contest to go to the Bahamas. Everyone but Ray goes. Ray tries to go, but has a run-in with someone dressed as the fisherman who kills Ray's friend and puts Ray in the hospital. In the Bahamas, it's storm season, so no one besides hotel employees are present on the island. Someone dressed as the fisherman kills all of the hotel staff besides a bartender named Nancy. Ray is making his way to the island. Tyrell gets murdered by the fisherman. It's revealed that Will is Ben's son and that Ben is still alive. Nancy is killed. Ray shows up. Ben accidentally kills his son Will and Julie shoots Ben multiple times with a gun Ray brought. After some time has passed, Ray and Julie are living together. Ben then jumps out from under the bed and grabs Julie. Ben Willis and his son are the killers. Jennifer Love Hewitt and Freddie Prince Jr. are back in this sequel. I love that instead of just calling this I Know What You Did Last Summer 2, it's called I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. I think adding still is hilarious even though the title is still too long and now it's confusing. You still know what they did last summer? The summer where you killed them? Are we no longer remembering the summer where they left you for dead, or is the statement in regards to both summers? Since still is in the title, you'd think the correct title would be, I still know what you did last, last summer. Hilarious, confusing, long title aside, how does this unnecessary sequel hold up to the original? I mean, the original isn't a good movie, but is the sequel fun like the original? Before deciding to continue my last summer journey, I read a synopsis for this sequel which basically stated the gang wins a vacation to the Bahamas, which ends up being interrupted by a killer. Oh hell yeah, a beach episode sequel. Fun, sun, slashing, and bikini babes. Remember when Bimo invites over the bikini babes in Adventure Time? Last Summer 2 is set in the Bahamas, during storm season. Yeah, the whole contest was a setup by Ben and his son to get Julie and her friends in a location where they'd be easy to kill. Turns out, storm season is real. You should avoid the Bahamas from June 1st to November 30th. Go figure. Somehow it takes Julie and her friends forever to figure out the whole thing was a setup. The radio station they win the tickets from called them. They also had to name the capital of Brazil, which they get wrong. Like me, they thought it was Rio, but after winning, they didn't even bother to look up if the answer was correct. I mean, I guess who cares? If I had already won, why would I want to make sure I was right if I was locked in for the win? For all you listeners who are like me and suck at geography, the capital is Brasilia. Some familiar faces pop up in Last Summer 2. Jeffrey Combs of Reanimator fame plays the hotel owner. I think he's the owner or just the front desk worker. Well, he's a lot of fun for the very small amount of time he's on screen. Jack Black appears out of nowhere as the hotel's stoner, drug-dealing pool boy. He's probably the best part of the movie. This is the second movie I can think of that I've seen Jack Black die in, the other being the Jackal. He might have died in Mars Attack, but I can't remember. Pretty much all I remember about the Jackal is the scene where Jack Black dies. His death in Last Summer 2 is pretty comedic and self-aware. The fisherman stabs his hook in Jack Black's hand, then looks at a bunch of potential weapons that are located in Jack Black's character's pool house. The fisherman decides on garden shears, which he then plants in Jack's chest. Yeah, I know that the shears should have been used for a decapitation. Remember when Jack Black voiced the main character in the video game Brutal Legend, 
who would sing yell decapitation whenever you decapitated an enemy. Even though the shears aren't used to their full potential, this death is fun. I wish the majority of Last Summer 2 was as self-aware as Jack Black's death scene. Most of our kills in the sequel are still hook-based. Ben now actually has a hook for a hand though, which is fun. Jeffrey Combs takes a machete to the head off-screen. The voodoo doctor character and Nancy are killed by a fishing spear. It's not as exciting as you're probably picturing in your head. There is a hook shoved through Tyrell's neck for his death, but it's not done practically, and the CGI isn't great. Even if it was done practically, the kill would still be boring. I feel like the only time I'm reminded that tanning beds were a thing is in horror movies where people get trapped in them. Julie is trapped inside one for a brief second. The first movie's ending is explained by adding PTSD dreams as a cheap scare device. Anything can happen while Julie's dreaming, but nothing exciting does. I'm assuming they'll say the bed grab was a dream in the next one. No one from the original cast is in the third movie, so maybe they'll just reveal Ray and Julie were killed in their home by the fisherman, who's still alive after taking eight shots from a revolver and falling into a muddy, open grave. Yep, there's a revolver with more than six shots, a red herring voodoo doctor, a scene where the killer walks behind a character without them knowing for no reason, a scenario where a door needs to be opened and there is a ring full of unlabeled keys, someone thinks they're holding someone else's hand when in reality they are holding hands with a corpse, and a closing jump scare with the already mentioned fisherman under the bed. This movie is filled with tropes, I barely scratched the surface there. Will is Ben's son that was never mentioned in the first movie. It's obvious from the get-go that Ben is either the killer or helping the killer. It's funny when Ben kills Will. He tries to stab Ray, who just casually jumps out of the way. There is some hilarious dialogue in this. Will hits Julie, then says cheesily, That's gonna leave a mark. At the end of the movie, Ray is brushing his teeth with an electric toothbrush. He finishes brushing and exclaims, I love this thing. Due to the actor that plays Ben Willis's delivery, practically everything he says is funny. Unfortunately, he doesn't say Happy Fourth of July in this one. If you watched Last Summer 1 and enjoy it, I recommend moving on to I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. It's more idiotic than the first somehow, but I'd say it's enjoyable enough. Definitely don't go out of your way to start this series, but if you have some free time, go for it. I didn't even mention the part where Julie's friend Carla steps on a glass ceiling tile, sees it start cracking, and decides to then put her other foot, thus her full weight on the tile, which causes her to crash through the glass ceiling. I also didn't point out that the pawn shop owner gives Ray the revolver without a background check for practically nothing, and that said pawn shop owner is played by that guy that was in Too Fast Too Furious, who gets a bucket with a rat underneath placed on his stomach. The villain in that movie then blowtorches the top of the bucket, which makes the rat start biting and scratching the guy. Yeesh. That scene is more horrifying than anything I've seen in the Last Summer series so far. I hope Last Summer 3 ups the kill creativity. I'm hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. By that I mean, I'm hoping for something incredibly mediocre and expecting absolute dog vomit, given that none of the original cast is attached and it went straight to video eight years after the second movie was released. The things I do for love. Number three, I'll always know what you did last summer. 2006, directed by Sylvain White. A brand new group of friends pulls a prank at an amusement park in Colorado. The prank is that the fisherman killer from an old urban legend is there attacking them. 
During the prank in which one of the kids is dressed up as the fisherman chasing around his friends, a guy in the group named PJ jumps off a parking garage with his skateboard as planned, but a mattress he was supposed to land on was moved, so he gets impaled on a tractor and dies. The prank is kept secret. One year later, someone dressed as the fisherman starts killing everyone who knows the truth about PJ's death. It's revealed that the fisherman is the original fisherman from the first two movies, who is now an invincible killing machine. Two remaining characters, Amber and Lance, figure out that the fisherman's only weakness is the original hook from the first movie that one of the kids bought on eBay for the prank. Amber jams the hook into the fisherman's head. Amber then pushes the fisherman into a big snowblower where he gets shredded and allegedly dies. Another year later, the fisherman pops up behind Amber after she has car trouble in the middle of nowhere. A stupidly dangerous stunt and the fishermen are the killers. Should you watch I'll Always Know What You Did last, 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 last summer, aka last summer three? Nope. I think I'll go ahead and make a blanket statement that you should avoid any sequel that comes out nine years or more after the original that has none of the original actors or creatives attached. If you can think of an exception, please let me know. Last Summer 3 has two interesting characters. Everyone else is boring and terrible. The first character that's fun is PJ, aka BJ, aka Beej, aka the Beejmeister. For the longest time, I thought his name was actually BJ. PJ skateboards on screen, lets everyone know he's rotisserie, I mean in ROTC, and really fills the punk skateboarder military hybrid trope that we all love in horror movies. Rather the trope that we would love if it caught on. I was excited to see all the skateboarding shenanigans, which unfortunately never really happen, since PJ dies in the first 5 minutes, maybe 10. His time on screen is limited. The other cool character is Zoe, who's played by Tori DeVito. Unfortunately, she's not related to Danny DeVito. Zoe's a punk rocker, who I'm pretty sure doesn't sing during the movie. The first time she's about to start singing, she takes a breath, then just stops. Later in the movie, she is shown singing, but I'm pretty sure she's dubbed over. Her character helps break up the blonde brigade that is everyone else. None of the characters besides PJ and Zoe are likable, so once Zoe gets murdered, I tuned out almost completely. One of the characters is named Amber, and she receives a letter with her name on it that looks like the letters from the OG movie. So when the letter appeared with her name on it, I obviously had to go, Whoa! In Last Summer 3, the fisherman doesn't send letters. That mentioned letter was from Amber's parents. 2000's fisherman sends 50 text messages that all say, I know what you did last summer. Thing is, unlike Last Summer 1, the death in Last Summer 3 is completely an accident and no one's, barring maybe PJ's, fault. Why is this now supernatural fisherman attacking people who aren't coming clean about an accidental death where the accidentee knew the risks going in? Hell, even if the mattress was in the right spot, PJ totally biffed it and landed on the tractor anyways. The death is 100% PJ's fault. Hubris is the real killer. You're not Tony Hawk, you silly billy. The other kills? I was getting to that. Like the other Last Summer movies, the kill in Last Summer 3 are boring and uninspired. You get a throat slash with the hook, 
a hook stab, another hook stab, a hook stab, then body pull through a window on a door, a hook stab, then body thrown over a balcony, and then you get, you guessed it, another hook stab. I guess the fisherman's snowblower death is kind of fun. How's the gore? It's fine. Doesn't really matter given how boring these kills are. The acting? Horrible. My favorite actor is a cop that continuously creeps on Amber. I don't like the creepin', but I love whenever they show a shot of him standing somewhere because he always has a really dumb look on his face. Throughout the movie, PJ's sheriff dad is the red herring character. During one scene with him, he walks through a deep, obvious puddle that could have easily been walked around, which made me think he was actually the killer psychopath. Like Last Summer 2, Last Summer 3 also has dream scares. In one of them, Zoe is attacked and killed. She then wakes up and is attacked again. Gotcha, it was a double dream. If you ever decide to write anything, I implore you to never add a double dream. The only time a double dream kind of worked was in Inception. I think that movie might have had even a triple dream. I can't remember. There are a lot of terrible stock sounds in Last Summer 3. My favorite is the elephant sound that's used the first time the fisherman is stabbed with the hook. I mean, he's already some otherworldly supernatural killing machine. Why wouldn't he make elephant sounds? Not only are Last Summer 3's actors and kills bad, the editing and lighting are also bad. I'm pretty sure no one even attempts to turn on a light during the whole movie. Someone also thought it would be a good idea to flash a bunch of images of the same location and people over and over throughout the movie. Do not watch Last Summer 3, not even if you love the first two. I'll end this series with the one-liner Amber says when she pushes the fisherman into the snowblower. I'll ham it up a bit, which should improve it. <clears throat> the secret dies with you. Number 4, Summer of 84, 2018, directed by Anouk Whistle, Francois Samar, and Yon Carl Whistle. A group of teens, Davy, Woody, Tommy, and Curtis, start spying on their neighbor, Mr. Mackey. After it's revealed that a serial killer, coined the Cape May Slayer, is on the loose. Davy thinks it's Mackie. The boys get some decent proof that Mackie is the killer and show the proof to Davy's parents. His parents get mad and make the boys apologize to Mackie. Davy doesn't let this stop his investigation. He, along with Woody and his old babysitter, Nikki, break into Mackie's house and check out what's behind a locked door in Mackie's basement. They find a dead body and a tied-up boy. The police begin looking for Mackie. Davy goes home and Woody spends the night at his house. Mackie kidnaps them, releases them into the woods somewhere, hunts them down, kills Woody, and lets Davy live. After telling Davy, he'll be back to kill him someday. Mr. Mackie is the killer. I'm not sure why they chose to name the killer Mr. Mackie, Seeing as most people will probably just picture the South Park character of the same name. Summer of 84 was directed by the trio that made Turbo Kid. They directed and wrote that movie. Turbo Kid is an insanely fun time. The trio did not write Summer of 84. Two randoms with no prominent credits did. That must be why a bunch of things happen for plot's sake and all the dialogue between the boys in the movie is absolute garbage. Ah yes. 
I remember when I was a 15-year-old boy, my male chums and I would talk about boobs, flogging the dolphin, and conspiracy theories. Nothing else. Just those three things, with most of our conversations having to do with the first two stated categories. Wait, that's, that's not what we talked about at all. According to the writers of Summer of 84, teenage boys only talk about jacking it and boobies, unless they are spying on a potential serial killer in their neighborhood. Teenage boys also can't go a sentence without cursing. Constant, terrible dialogue spews from this gaggle of boys' mouths, which made me instantly hate all of them, which would be fine if these boys died in the movie. Only one actually ends up dying. Which one? The one that you grow the most attached to who actually has redeemable qualities. What? Why would they kill the only likable character? That character's name is Woody. Even his name sounds like a reference to meat beating. He's the token chubby kid in the group. He's a sweet boy that is trying his best to help his overworked, alcoholic single mother. Seriously, she's barely hanging on as is, and the writers decide to murder her sympathetic son. That just makes me feel bad and angry. I mean, I guess it's good that it made me feel something, because the first four-fifths of the movie didn't. This is an overly long, bad version of Rear Window. These boys are trying to find proof that their neighbor is a serial killer. When they eventually find some pretty decent proof, they present it to Davy's parents, who are the worst. The parents just get mad at the boys, and force them to apologize to their neighbor, who ends up totally being a serial killer. You'll be able to hold that above your parents' rock-filled heads forever, Davy. Since the writing in this movie is dumb, and things only happen for plot convenience, after it's revealed that Mackie is in fact the serial killer who is still on the loose and planned on murdering Davy specifically, the cops send all the kids back to their homes. They don't leave any cops outside their houses or anything. This gross incompetence allows Mackie to sneak out of Davy's attic, drug him and Woody who was staying over since his mom was working a night shift, and get both boys into his conspicuous cop car, the killer shockingly enough was a cop, without anyone noticing. Eh. I guess Mackie could technically get both kids out of the house and into his car without alerting anyone, but Woody is a big boy. Deadweight is crazy heavy. Most of what happens in this movie is highly improbable, so you really have to suspend your disbelief from the get-go. Speaking of suspending your disbelief, Davey, who's a nerdy loser, briefly ends up with his super hot older ex-babysitter. Yeah... I could suspend my disbelief when it comes to a serial killer neighbor sneakily kidnapping two boys and driving them out to his murder forest to play the most dangerous game without alerting anyone, but in no universe would this babysitter give Davy the time of day. The writing is bad. I've already said that though. Strangely enough, there is one decently written joke. The boys are digging through Mackie's trash. During their trash digging, one of the boys says, you know you can get AIDS from looking through trash, right? Which another boy responds to with, That's the only way you'll get AIDS. Ignoring the ignorance regarding how AIDS is transmitted, it's a pretty creative, you'll never get laid joke. The boys leave the trash all over the place with the reasoning that Mackie will think raccoons did it. They later dig up Mackie's garden, again assuming that he'll believe that raccoons also did that. You can't just do things and assume people will think raccoons did it. I just pictured the boys lighting Mackie's house on fire and him coming back to witness the inferno. Mackie then falls to his knees, looks up to the sky with the look of pure agony on his face, 
as he shouts raccoons over and over as tears roll down his cheeks. Digging through the trash, they'll blame the raccoons. Digging up the garden, they'll blame the raccoons. Stealing the Declaration of Independence, they'll blame the raccoons. This is an 80s nostalgia cash grab, so there are a bunch of gratuitous 80s references. Summer of 84 is basically Stranger Things. If it was edgy, the 80s vibe was even more ham-fisted, and all the kids were unlikable idiots. Can we stop killing off the chubby dudes in horror movies? Why can't the chubby kid be the hero for once? The wrong nerd died. Davy should have been on the receiving end of that throat slash that kills Woody. Speaking of the throat slash, it's the only on-screen kill. There isn't a ton of gore in this, the little bits that are shown, the throat slash, footstep, melty corpse in the bathtub, and murder forest bodies are done well enough, but this film's effects work is nowhere near as impressive as you'd expect from the creators of Turbo Kid. I have no idea why this is the project the Turbo Kid trio decided to take on. Maybe they owed someone a favor, or the script was vastly different when they signed on? The acting is passable, it's not great, Davy is the worst of the boys, the dialogue makes it impossible for any of them to be believable characters, Mackie is played by Rich Sommer, who has one of the most punchable faces of all time, maybe I see it as punchable due to him playing the douchebag cheating ex-husband in the Netflix revival of Glow, I heard he also plays a jerk in Mad Men. He's perfectly cast as a creepy, middle-aged, white suburban serial killer. He definitely has the look of one. One of the boys in the group looks and dresses in the same style as that girl that ends up making out with Corey Feldman in The Goonies. I'm not sure if the wardrobe decision was done on purpose, but the resemblance is uncanny. Wasn't it super weird when that girl made out with Corey Feldman in The Goonies? She looked at least 10 years older than him. Uh. Summer of 84 is a mediocre movie. I've heard people praise the ending, but the ending is not worth the journey. I'd recommend watching Rear Window or Turbo Kid instead. Hopefully the Turbo Kid trio picks something that has more potential for their next project. Number 5, Overlord 2018, directed by Julius Avery. An American squad airdrops into France with a mission to take down a German radio tower. Their plane is attacked during the drop. Barely any of the squad survives. The remaining members group up. One steps on a mine and dies. The soldiers run into a French woman named Chloe. She lets them stay at her house. Two soldiers, Tibet and Chase, go look for others. The other two members of the squad, Boyce and Ford, stay at the house. A Nazi named Waffner tries to force himself on Chloe, but Boyce and Ford intervene and capture him. Boyce goes to get Tibbet and Chase, but ends up in a tower after evading some dogs. There he sees that the Nazis are doing horrifying experiments, steals a syringe filled with a weird serum, rescues a soldier friend named Rosenfeld, and makes it back to the house. The squad prepares to storm the tower. Chase goes to get Waffner, who ends up killing Chase, kidnapping Chloe's brother, and escaping. Boyce injects Chase with the serum, which makes him come back to life. Ford has to put Chase down. The remainder of the squad continues their mission. Ford fights Waffner, who injected himself with a bunch of syringes after escaping. Boyce helps Ford get the upper hand, but to survive, Ford had to inject himself with the serum. Ford sacrifices himself to blow up the lab where he locked himself, Waffner, and the other zombie Nazis. Boyce finishes blowing up the tower and escapes. 
Everyone in the remaining group besides Ford lives and are added to another team. The Nazis are the killers. When I first saw the trailers for Overlord, all I thought was, great, another World War II movie, real original. Then zombies popped up, and I thought, great, another World War II movie with Nazi zombies, real original. As you can tell, I wasn't expecting this to be anything groundbreaking. It's not groundbreaking. It's a World War II movie with Nazi zombies. Even though it's not groundbreaking, it's pretty entertaining. The opening sequence is intense and really captures the terror one faces when going off to war. Right from the get-go, the plane the characters we end up following are in starts dodging explosions. The plane is then ripped to shreds by heavy fire. While all this chaos is happening, the squad has to stay calm and wait for the plane to be in the correct spot to jump out. The opening sequence alone is worth the price of admission. The intro is scarier than anything else that happens. I was literally on the edge of my seat. Besides the paratrooping sequence, nothing is really all that scary. Overlord was advertised as a horror war movie, but we don't really get much horror besides the horror of war. That last sentence sounds like it came out of a Dr. Seuss book. Overlord is a war movie. It's an action movie. Is it a horror movie? Not really. The film is incredibly light on horror elements, which is the biggest bummer. Even though Overlord is light on horror, it is an entertaining action movie. I just wanted more creepy horror sequences. I'd say the only sequence that really feels like a horror movie is a part where Chloe gets chased by a creepy one-armed zombie man. That was awesome. I thought we'd get more stuff like that, but instead we get zombie fisticuffs between zombie Waffner and zombie Ford, which is kinda lame. Give us more freaky experiments like the woman who's just ahead in spinal cord who keeps saying s'il vous plaît. That means please in French. I love the creepiness of her begging Boyce to kill her. Give us less human looking zombie monsters and more that look like the one that chases Chloe. All of the other zombies shown at the end just look like normal shirtless dudes with bulging veins. They aren't frightening or interesting in the least. They look like your average group of bros who are searching for gains late night in a planet fitness. The director James Avery states that a ton of practical effects were used in the movie, which didn't come off as practical. The Waffner character gets a bullet in the face, and you later get to see the aftermath front and center, but even though Avery states that the gore was mostly practical makeup, you can tell that the hole is done using CGI. I get it, you can't put a hole in someone's face, but because that part is CGI, it makes you question what's practical. It's hard to look at it and really see the practical makeup. I believe the color correction makes it look a lot less real. It feels off. The scene in which Chase is injected with the serum is also said to have been done practically, but it doesn't come off as practical. I'm not sure why exactly. It might be the editing. There are a lot of cuts during the sequence. I still really liked when his head flips backwards, and I do like the practical bones that are protruding from his skin after the snapback. It's awesome to see, and Avery says it was done using old-school puppetry and animatronics. It just doesn't look like it was for some reason. I can't quite put my finger on it. A lot of the actors look like other people. I kept jumping back and forth regarding whether or not Waffner was played by Michael Shannon. He isn't, and is definitely much younger, but oh boy does the actor, Pilo Aspect, look like Michael Shannon. 
Jovan Adepo, who plays Boyce, looks like John Boyega. And Wyatt Russell, who plays Ford, looks like his dad, Kurt. Unfortunately for Wyatt, he didn't inherit his dad's charisma. His performance is the weakest of the bunch. Everyone else is pretty good. Overlord is an entertaining war movie. If you like World War II action movies, you'll like this. If you want to see it just for the horror elements, you'll be disappointed. One last thing, I adored the title cards and credits. They had that old film style and were in black and white. Number 6, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 1920, directed by Robert Vina. A man named Francis begins telling a story about a stranger named Dr. Caligari who came to his town some time ago. Dr. Caligari started performing a show where he controls a man who's always asleep named Cesare. People started getting murdered mysteriously, including Francis's friend Alan. Both Alan and Francis were trying to win the affection of a girl named Jane. A man is caught and accused of being the murderer. He says he was just trying to kill an old lady during the panic. Cesare then shows up at Jane's bedroom while she's sleeping and decides to kidnap her instead of kill her. He doesn't get far, so he lets go of Jane and runs. It's revealed that Caligari is the director of an asylum. He waited for a patient who was always asleep so he could try to control him like the Caligari from an old legend did. Cesare is found dead. The director is then condemned to the asylum. We then come back to the present where we find out Francis is crazy and is in the asylum along with Jane and Cesare. Now that the director understands Francis's delusion, he says he can help him. No one is actually a killer. Unless Francis is telling the truth and there's a big conspiracy. In that case, the director is the killer since he kills people by controlling the sleepwalking Cesare. Thing is, Francis is an unreliable narrator. The cabinet of Dr. Caligari introduced the unreliable narrator and twist ending. This film is ridiculously influential. It's considered the first feature-length horror movie. You can't have a discussion about the history of film without bringing up Caligari. What makes the movie great? I'd say a lot of the greatness stems from the production design. The sets in this movie are irregular. Everything has a jagged look to it. It's like a cartoon world. The art design from the film is impeccable. Everything from the sets to the inner titles are absolutely stunning. It's hard to fathom that a movie of this caliber was created in 1920. Sure, The Birth of a Nation came out five years earlier, but let's not talk about that. Germany was in shambles after World War I, which means there wasn't a ton of money to pump into crazy extravagant sets, so the filmmakers had to get creative. During this time, Germany started making movies that covered darker themes in their films, which led to the creation of the gothic horror and film noir genres. Due to this creativity and genre innovation, the German film industry began to directly compete with Hollywood since at the time, Hollywood was making easy for-profit films. I'd love to give all of you listeners an in-depth lesson on German expressionism, but the subject is vast and daunting. I'm honestly too intimidated to try and cover it in a succinct and intelligent manner. I gave you a small taste, so now it's time to focus on my thoughts on the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I've already gushed about my love for the art design. The sets being so surreal really helped create the uneasy atmosphere of the film. Acting was different back in those days, but for the time, the acting seemed strong. I learned what a somnambulist is from watching this movie. It's someone who is always asleep. Cesare was said to be one, but I felt calling him that in the summary would be confusing. 
The score for the movie ranges from hauntingly beautiful to downright cacophonous. The intro is loud and intense. It sounds like someone is making vicious love to an organ. I was filled with a feeling of dread right off the bat by the music alone. The scene composition is amazing. There is so much to take in during the most simple scenes given the impeccable set design. After the first murder in the movie, it's said that the town clerk was stabbed by a strange object through use of an inner title. Right after the inner title, the next scene opens on a monkey. I was sure that the monkey was the killer, but the monkey was only a red herring. It's strange that people in attendance are impressed with Caligari's act, given the fact that it could be easily staged. I could pretend to be asleep until an old man in a top hat cued me to move. The only impressive thing he does is predict that a man will die before dawn. But then Caligari cheats and uses Cesare to kill the man. I mean, I guess the prophecy came true, so... The guy that is killed after the prophecy is named Alan. He has a striking resemblance to that dude that played Gabe in the later seasons of The Office. I really liked how Alan's death was filmed. You basically watch Shadow Alan get stabbed to death by Shadow Cesare, and it's great. You aren't supposed to be sure the killer is Cesare at this point, so the use of shadows is perfect. I did find the twist ending to be rather cheap, given that the twist basically means everything that happened didn't, but this was one of the first twist endings. At the time, everything was just the ravings of a lunatic wasn't a cliche twist. I'm basically saying that everything was just the ravings of a lunatic is the same thing as it was all a dream. Caligari is basically the OG it was all a dream. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is an influential classic that I recommend for anyone that wants to learn more about the history of film. Silent films aren't for everyone, and that's okay. If you have a deep interest in film history and the beginning of the horror genre, definitely check out The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Number 7, Haunted 2018. Netflix recently released an original series called Haunted. The first season is 6 episodes long, and the episodes are about 25 minutes long. Each episode has a person tell a spooky, allegedly true story about something that happened or continues to happen to them. Let me give you a rundown of all the episodes. You got a dude that sees the bend neck lady from the haunting of Hill House, two sisters who claim their parents were serial killers that murdered a ton of people, a girl that says her uncle opened a portal that let a demon follow her, a guy that gave a trio of ghost children a doll to kill his overly Christian mother, a woman that tells us about her multiple alien abductions, and lastly, a girl whose love for a ghost man named Clarence is so strong she left her husband. All of these stories are completely unbelievable and obviously either made up or manifestations of legitimate childhood trauma. A bunch of the stories start with the storyteller saying they saw something traumatizing as a kid, for example watching a dude get brutally murdered by someone with an axe, and or their parents were physically abusive. Three out of the six episodes feature a kid getting hit in the reenactments. You'd think that it would be hard to watch since child abuse is awful, but the reenactments are so terribly put together that the kid hits are hilarious. The sound effects for the hits don't fit at all. For one of the hits, the Christian mom smacks her son in the face with a comically oversized Bible. The best thing about each episode are the reactions from the storyteller's friends and families. The format of the show is incredibly awkward. 
It's basically the storyteller sitting in a circle with their friends and family. Their friends and family don't really talk much, so I'd say a good fourth of the episode just shows their reactions, which are hilarious. You get looks of shock, tears, confused gazes, and faces that scream, Why am I even here? Haunted feels one step away from a mockumentary series you'd watched on the internet. The reactions of the audience and the way the story is delivered make it feel like you're watching a clickhole video. All of the reenactments are awful. Everyone's house they grew up in is super creepy and dark. The makeup effects used for the ghosts that have a human appearance are awful. The first episode has a ghost with those terrible contacts that make your eye color white. The ghost is also obviously an attractive girl underneath the makeup, which really hurts the scare factor. The demon makeup is somewhat passable, but the demon looks like a cheesy Jeepers Creepers knockoff. During the most unbelievable segment where the children and a grandson of the serial killer parents are telling their story, the grandson says he found a bunch of trophies the serial killer dad kept after the dad passed away and the grandson inherited the house. The grandson says he just threw all of them away instead of contacting the authorities. The grandson also basically says he knows where the bodies are buried but won't tell anyone where to find them. I mean, I get not wanting to say anything when your crazy serial killer grandfather is alive because, you know, fear, but not saying anything after he dies confirms you're making this story up. The funniest episode is probably the last one. A girl is talking about a ghost named Clarence who takes care of her. The whole time she is telling her stories about growing up and Clarence, her ex-husband is listening. She talks about her cool bad boy ex-boyfriend Tom and how she basically wants to bang ghost Clarence. The ex-husband just sits there like a chump. Have you ever been in a relationship where the person you were involved with hated you so much they left you for a ghost? Haunted is a trash show. I knew going in that it was going to be fake garbage, but I have a weakness for these awful ghost reality shows. If you're looking for a cringy ghost show you can laugh at while having a few drinks with some friends, Haunted is the show for you. It's so terrible, it's amusing. Throw some dirt on the casket that is episode 32. It's over. I probably should have talked about all those summer movies in the actual summertime. If you enjoyed this episode of Blank is the Killer, why not rate it on iTunes? Post about it on Instagram using the Blank is the Killer hashtag, or get a tattoo of the podcast art on your left cheek. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, allowing it to find all of you listeners. I did it. I covered the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Hopefully you didn't think I totally biffed that section. Blank is the Killer will be back on December 2nd. If there is an amazing Christmas horror movie that you know about that wasn't covered last year, let me know about it. Even if I've already seen the recommended movie, I'll say a little something something about it. Make sure to watch Blood Rage on Thanksgiving. That's what I'll be doing.